0: All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve.
1: Hey. So... I guess this is where we usually go through the whole farce of talking about how, oh, how have you been since we last talked? And it's just literally been seconds later, but this time, not so much.
0: Yes, poor Zencaster zonked us. We record this podcast. You know, we live in different states and we record over a service called Zencaster and they made us bump up to being premium members or something like that. And they were giving us a countdown as to how long we could record. And it was it was all very stressful, but Hopefully it is solved. Hopefully they will not kick us off halfway through this episode. Uh,
1: The the little countdown is gone off of the uh, page now. And uh, fortunately, we didn't actually have to pay anything, at least at this point. For uh for this stuff, they just had us have to fill out a little bit more information so they could you know be like, hey, do you want to have these people advertise? And I'm like, you know, if if we're gonna make some money off of this stuff, which we're definitely not at this point, <laughs> no. um, this is a this is a hobby we are putting money into rather than the other way. But if we were, it would be through like a Patreon or through you know uh uh other sorts of stuff like that. So <laughs> fortunately, they're not charging us any money yet but uh I, I fear that might be coming eventually
0: yes okay so should we jump back into these books
1: uh now let's do something else this time
0: no i say we do books <laughs> what we're here okay. to do we're on episode right. what is this episode 56 or 50, 57 maybe 57 I don't know. something like that it's it's we have a formula we should stick to it okay who is doing what here who is doing strange tales
1: you are doing strange tales
0: all right, Strange Tales, number 131, The Bouncing Ball of Doom. So last time we did the four books from March 1965. Here we are doing the last four books from March 1965. Those first four books were all pretty great. Those were four great comics. And here we have half a great comic. Uh, unfortunately, it's the back half is great, and the first half is not. Our first stinker of the month. This is The Bouncing Ball of Doom, The Mad Thinker's Madness Plan, it says on the cover. Also, Doctor Strange and Hunter and the Hunted. but he is being de-emphasized. He seems to just be a Dicko picture that's been snipped out. It, I don't think Dicko actually did this cover, but that's clearly Dicko Doctor Strange. Yes, so
1: then I believe that's correct.
0: We go to the first story, Human Torch and the Everloving Thing, starring in The Bouncing Ball of Doom, featuring the maniacal menace of the man-thinker. We have, once again, story by Stan prolifically, illustrated by Bob Terrific Powell, delineation by Dick-specific heirs lettering by S. Hieroglyphic Rosen, so we once have Bob Powell, who is not terrible and is not great. Uh, the Powell Airs team I like better than the Ayers-Reinman team we had before this, but not much more, just slightly more.
1: Like at least some elements of this opening splash page, I think the overall composition of it doesn't work for me but i love the drawings of the cars i love those two cops in the front in the foreground in the bottom left hand corner they just have a lot of character and a lot of texture to them so there are some things about this i like but yeah we're gonna see that this is just an uninspired story and i just don't think it's inspiring anyone to do their best work
0: no well, yeah,
1: the, those cops have a lot of milk Kniff energy to them.
0: So then we begin a story with, as the thing and Johnny Storm are going over a bridge, the bridge starts to break and they have to weld it back together. And it just so happens as they're welding back together, a car with bank robbers in tries to go zooming across the bridge and cops are able to wham it, possibly because they got distracted by reading Johnny. Well, it cuts to the man thinker who is furious. He planned the bank robbery and it's been ruined by the chance intervention of Johnny and Ben and he is just furious and he plans his revenge so he's creating a bouncing ball I guess this was this was 1965 I guess the song you'll be coming back to me like a red rubber ball was on the, a hit on the radio and Stanley <laughs> or Bob Powell figured hey that's great that's my next
1: villain a bouncing rubber ball wasn't that actually written by Paul Simon although not it was. by him
0: before he was big cut to a dam where the builder of the dam is there checking it out and doesn't realize the mad thinker is there dropping off his bouncing ball to break the dam of course as with almost every single human torch or human torch and thing comic begins with them going like hey we've been been invited to go do something ceremonial you know gee i'm so thrilled i'm so honored and it's always always guys a plot to kill you And indeed, they go to the opening of the dam, and then the big bouncing ball attacks them, and they fight back, and then it almost destroys the dam, and the guy who built the dam has to be rescued and then shut it off at the last second, and they manage to destroy the bouncing ball, and as with the last time they fought the Mad Thinker in this comic, they never even meet him, they never even know he exists, and we just see the Mad Thinker watching the whole thing on TV like a schmuck, and then getting disappointed when his bouncing ball is destroyed. The end. A terrible comic.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, some of the art in here, like I said, some of the Bob Powell stuff, uh, I really kind of like, but some of it is really not great. Page 12, the last page of the story. Actually, there are a lot of elements of this that remind me of the Joe Orlando, Vince Coletta issues of um, Daredevil which, you know, as I think I have mentioned before, not my favorite. No. (laughs) So, yeah, poor. uh, I say we go on and deal with greater things.
0: Yes, let's move on to better things. We are almost to the end of Human Torch Thing stories. We've just got a couple more left, I think. And then it will be replaced by Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I am greatly looking forward to. But in the meantime, what's going? on to Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, The Hunter and the Hunted. We are on, I think this is, this is part two or part three of the big 12-part epic. I think it's at least three, isn't it? Okay. We are in the middle of our massive epic. We have Doctor Strange hunted, being chased across the globe by Baron Mordo, who is powered by Dormammu. And uh, we have a nice splash page sort of showing that figuratively. We cut
1: to the story. Notice that Doctor Strange is basically wearing the question's costume without the mask.
0: You're right. <laughs> he very much is.
1: <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of a, a medium blue suit with an orange. Well, in this case, I think it's a cravat. But, you know, on the question, it was just is dress shirt and a fedora. And uh, yeah, very much so.
0: Of course, Steve Nicole will be leaving Marble and moving to Charlton and creating the question within two years. So then we cut to... Doctor Strange, who is still on the run in Hong Kong, Dicko is still absolutely killing it, drawing the streets of Hong Kong. He is absolutely oh, yeah. loving this, and um, Doctor Strange is running through the streets. When suddenly he is jumped by a bunch of goons, but he hits them with his bright light, and his then hits them with his actual fists and is bopping them out. Um, we then cut to now. According, I looked it up. Mordo sends his head goon after Doctor Strange. Now the head goon is not named here but will be eventually named Kaecilius, who then became the main bad guy in the Doctor Strange movie. In the Doctor Strange movie that they would eventually make with Benedict Cumberbatch, they essentially just split Baron Mordo up into two characters. And then because only one of them could be named Baron Mordo, they named the other one Kaecilius. doesn't really have much to do with this character. But this will be it. Kaecilius is sort of a goon of Baron Mordo who I guess officially was introduced last issue, according to official Marvel records, just as one of the goons who was following Mordo around when he was attacking and takes a little bit more of a lead role in this issue and will be named a little bit after that.
1: You're talking about the guy with the mustache that looks like a cross between Hercule Poirot and Mario.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. It's getting a little confusing here because we have Kaecilius with his little ghostly Mordo head over his shoulder yelling at him, who's got a little ghostly, ghostly <laughs> Dormammu head over his shoulder yelling at him. But Caecilius uh, is rounding up a bunch of frightening looking pirates, uh, of trying to get them all to attack Strange. One of them is complaining, so he puts him inside a little shell and says, I'll do that to all you guys if you don't let me do it. Cut back to Doc Strange, who is trying to get out of the country, is looking at the docks, is looking at the airport. Mordo not only has human goons who are walking around, but he's got flying ectoplasmic goons. We see Dr. Strange, he's at the talks, realizes he's not going to go if that decides to fly after all. I saw you posted this panel on Facebook where he's Dr. Strange is having to actually fight his way out of this. And he says sorcery yes. is more than the learning of ancient spells. It also stresses muscle power and fighting skill. And he's whopping his way out of it.
1: Which I love. I mean, that panel is just fantastic. Although a number of people, when I posted that, have pointed out that that looks a lot like Stan Lee. Hmm. Although, yeah. although it looks like Stan Lee after he starts wearing the toupee and he was not wearing the toupee yet at this point. So and I don't think he had any facial hair yet either. It might just be in retrospect. He may have just seen this and said, that's a cool one.
0: I want to be a Doctor Strange. So then Doctor Strange does his one of his favorite tricks. He creates a bunch of illusions of himself running in all different directions. And that works. He then does it again on the echoplasmic goons because it works so well on the normal goons. He then goes to the airport, hypnotizes a baggage carrier to smuggle him on the plane as baggage, but he seemingly gets out of the baggage long enough to actually get on the plane, sits in his seat. Ectoplasmic goon comes through the window, and they have a very cool ectoplasm fight above the heads of the passengers on the plane, who are none the wiser. And then, you know, I really like in this series in general, and especially in this saga, how they frequently have Doctor Strange, even though he's doing these wild magic things, have to do things that are surprisingly physical. This one goes a little bit almost too far. Like He knocks out an ectoplasmic goon and takes the ectoplasmic goon's ectoplasmic clothes off and puts them on himself. And then he has to pretend to be the ectoplasmic goon and fly off the plane and just sort of wave everybody off because he apparently can't like imitate the voice of the ectoplasmic goon. But he has to just sort of go like, oh, check the plane, boss here. Not here. Hi guys, go on, do something else. I'm like going, I don't know, it's, it gets a little weird, the idea of taking off a ethereal being's clothes and putting them on yourself, on your own ethereal self. But uh, he does it and it works. And then Doctor Strange successfully flies way into the night and can continue the chase now that he has finally made it out of Hong Kong. And that is the end of this issue. I'm a big fan of this issue. The nice thing about having a big 12-part epic is that you can have smaller stories like this that just have one particularly harrowing night in the life of Dr. Strange as part of him being on the run.
1: Yeah, one thing actually that just now occurred to me when you were talking about, you know, him, I hadn't really thought about, you know, him taking the costume off of the ectoplasmic goon, but uh, I, I remember somebody pointing out at one point that in the original movie Tron, like not the recent remakes, but the one back in the 80s, that there was one case where one of the protagonists knocked out one of the guards or whatever it is in the Tron world and then like took the coloring of that guy's neon parts essentially off of him and transferred them onto himself to then infiltrate Whatever he was going to infiltrate, and you know they were talking about, oh yeah, that's like the old thing of knocking out the guard and taking his clothes, but you know in this different context. And uh, so that's actually now that you bring that up, that's reminding me of that a little bit. So um, a, a couple of other visual things that I want to bring up on page nine. At the top, uh, is it just me, or is J. Jonah Jameson's drunk brother uh, <laughs> one of the people looking? Or maybe his ne'er-do-well twin, or something like that, yeah. is uh, is looking for him there. Also, on the previous page, on page 8, where Doctor Strange is like hypnotizing the baggage worker in order to bring him on board, his face looks really freaky, and actually it reminds me Of some of his later, like, mysterious Mr. A comics and stuff like that. Just the look on his face.
0: This is just an absolutely gorgeous book. It is just wonderful. Uh, Dicko just loves Hong Kong. He just loves Tibet. And he loves everything he gets to do here. The junks in the harbor are gorgeous. Everything is gorgeous in this entire issue.
1: Yeah. Well, not the entire issue. The entire story.
0: Yes. (laughs) In this entire (laughs) story, in this issue, nothing is gorgeous in the first half.
1: Yes. Uh well, like I said, there's two there's two traffic cops on the on the splash page and the uh and Johnny's sports car. I will say those two were gorgeous. But uh beyond that, yes, no. Uh absolutely not. All right. So, uh you took Strange Tales. That means I've got Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America. We see on the cover that we've got the return of Hawkeye and the new Black Widow. And we see her climbing on the ceiling. And I I don't think that keeps up long at all. Does it? Her wall crawling abilities?
0: No, that totally stays. I mean, I guess she doesn't do that anymore. Go Hanson, number six at walls. But I know in the 80s, Black Widow was wall crawling all the time. That was a big part of it. Really? When Frank Miller had Black Widow as a, Mm you know, recurring guest character in Daredevil, she was crawling on walls.
1: All right, well, I did not recall that. Then we are going to have Captain America facing Sando and Omar, two eerie enemies from Captain America's dramatic past. I'm not going to be a huge fan of really either of these stories for the most part, but uh, we will go through them. Iron Man, Hawkeye and the New Black Widow Strike Again. Oh, so in the credits, let me just first talk about this. It says, Powerful script by Stan Lee, Poignant art by Don Heck, Punchy inking by Chick Stone, Polite lettering by Sam Rosen, plenty of kibitzing by the bullpen gang. So I wonder if this is one of those things where they had to get other people to pitch in to help get the thing finished. Yeah, uh, but, you know, uh, when we were, um, you know, in the '80s or whatever, they would sometimes uh, credit things like that. You know, say Inker D. Period hands. Like the first initial is D and that, that essentially stood for diverse hands. And then also you'd sometimes have credited as crusty bunkers, but then if I'm not mistaken, whenever it was that, you knew it was actually Neil Adams studio that had been pulled in to do this. Anyway, okay, we then get a close-up of a woman's legs in fishnet stockings, and we find out this is the Black Widow who has now been given an actual costume and powers. She's talking about her little monofilament kind of line that she can use to go swinging around, pretty much just like we found out that daredevil can do this month somehow i find it easier to buy here because she does not say it's so simple as to be foolproof <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that i'm sorry that phrase is what killed it for me on the other one so anyway she's back in the u.s hawkeye is practicing some of his arrows and it's easy to forget that at least early on, he was inventing his own trick arrows for the most part. He was sometimes supplementing them with a technology that Natasha was bringing from the Soviets. But, uh, you know, he did a lot of stuff on his own. And it's actually going to get a little ridiculous when he joins the Avengers in a little bit. So we see Hawkeye and Black Widow being much more lovey-dovey here than I think we really have ever seen them before and will ever see them again, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they've usually been a little bit like, uh, is she just sort of seducing him and using him? Or does she actually like him? Does she have any loyalty to him? But here it just seems like, oh, my darling. You know. Um,
0: they got pretty lovey-dovey in the Avengers later in uh, the Thomas Buscema years on the Avengers. But, okay, I'm um,
1: not as familiar with that period so okay
0: but uh Uh, yeah this is uh this is new like let's just talk about just how radically the black widow has been transformed here like she never had any physical powers in the past she was she would walk around in a fur and high heels and pearls and a veil and you know now they're like oh well she's black widow so she should be able to do what a spider can do she should be able to cling to walls and shoot out filaments and do these various sort of things it's like in the past, she was the Black Widow, so she had the proportionate strength and speed of a widow. And she was she was someone who dressed like a widow, wearing a veil, who acted like a widow, who talked like a widow. And it never even occurred to them that Black Widow was also the name of a spider. And at this point, they seem to have belatedly said, oh, wait... Uh, sp- <laughs> having someone with spider powers makes more sense than having someone with a widow powers. So then they have completely reconceived the character here to the extent of why not just start over from scratch and I, I always say that the ultimate failure of costuming is when you include the first letter of the person's name. So now Hawkeye has always had an H on his head. The Black Widow now has a little B on her brooch that holds her little cape on.
1: They have not yet, though, had her uh, do that uh, typical Eastern European red dye job on her hair yet that uh, <laughs> she will eventually get. So anyway, she recounts how she got here and how she was different. She was captured and brought back to the Kremlin, not wanting to work for them anymore, but they threaten her
0: parents. So Khrushchev used to be a regular character in the Marvel Universe, Khrushchev yelling at villains all the time and threatening to have them go kill the baddies, or he kill them. Oh, right. But so here it says, but instead I was taken to the comrade leader just before his fall from power. His anger was terrifying, but he still had plans for me. So we have our final appearance of Khrushchev, who has been long dethroned here. I think, you know, Khrushchev had been out of power for several months by the time this comic came out. Maybe it happened only as they were actually <laughs> making it. And they're like, "Uh oh, Khrushchev has been forced out by Brezhnev, but uh, we've got him in this comic. So we just have to explain this happened just before his fall from power.
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. Come to think of it, I looked that up when I read through this the first time, but I'd forgotten to uh, to note anything about it. And yeah, it had been like three months earlier or something like that. Anyway, they bring in her parents and basically say, you know, implicitly threaten to kill them if she doesn't do what they want. They take him to see. A, they take her to see a Soviet scientist. He has come up with a whole array of uh, high tech stuff for her to have to give her superpowers. So now she's got little, you know, magnetic or suction or some kind of sticky uh, boots that allow her to climb on stuff. Apparently, it also gives her the super strength to be able to just, ha- ha- you know, be at weird angles and not really strain. It looks like. Yes. She then says to Hawkeye. All right, now you have to help me. And we've already seen this thing happen before where he's like, but Natasha, no matter what I am, no matter what I've done, I can't be a traitor to my country, which he totally has before. And then she says, I ask you to betray nothing. Your only task is to help me destroy Iron Man or must I do it alone? No, my darling, I can't lose you again. I'll do it no matter what the cost. So we've had him doing that whole like, I can't be a traitor. Oh, yes, I totally can. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, more That's than one thing is
0: at this point he is going to join the Avengers next month he is yes. one month away from joining the Avengers and he is still trying to kill Iron Man I had forgotten that you know as opposed to Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch who it feels like have had a nice gradual evolution towards Herodom uh it's pretty sudden for Hawkeye for yeah. him to still be doing this a month before he joins the Avengers
1: Yes, yes, it it, it is a strange turn of events. So then we see that Happy and Pepper are out driving somewhere. I guess that they have been dating, at least to some extent, since Tony said that he was engaged to be married. And he actually proposes to Pepper, Uh, Happy does, Uh, which seems a little bit like, okay, so you've been on a couple of dates, and now it's like, hey, let's make this forever. (laughs) Doesn't seem uh, right. But anyway, she, of course, says no, as she wisely should. But then they're blinded by a flash. Turns out that's Hawkeye who uh, did that. He, you know, they crash into a tree. He brings them back to this hideout and then Black Widow just gets on the phone and says, hey, it just calls up Tony Stark, apparently just has his direct line, says, hey, I've got them prisoners, send Iron Man. Then we end up at the train depot where the rendezvous is supposed to happen. So they get in a battle and there's this sort of boomerang shrieking arrow that is uh, taking out Iron Man. And then we find out that he can just emit electricity bursts uh, that he does to um, electrocute Hawkeye a little bit. And so then Natasha jumps onto one of those uh, what is there a hand name for these things hand hand car. Car? yeah i usually just think of it as that that thing that they're on at the beginning of blazing South.
0: <laughs> i once had a fantasy of crossing america by hand car i wanted to i i i i looked into it i tried me and a friend from college we're going to try to cross america by hand car
1: Uh, yeah, I don't think that would really work that well. That (laughs) that seems like a poor, poor idea. So anyway, she gets on a hand car and then she starts moving it towards Iron Man. And then she's like, now it's rolling at full speed. Uh, I'll let the car destroy Iron Man. And I'm just thinking, really? A hand car moving at hand car speeds (laughs) is going to destroy Iron Man? But Stanley does put in there, it's like, oh but you know happy and pepper directly behind me so if i don't stop this it's a problem so then he actually does a neat sort of visual thing of picking up the rails themselves like bending the rails up as though they're ropes uh and stopping the car iron man at one point he's in a power dive and then he's like oh no i'm trapped by something hawkeye is doing uh if only i can get my burrowing tools onto my hands really super quickly and then from out of nowhere he's then got this little drill tool that allows him to just dive right into the earth at full flight (laughs) speed (laughs) like yeah man I, i know suspension disbelief i know kids But, I mean, come on. Uh, Sort of
0: like his knee section cups he had available a couple issues ago. Yes.
1: Well, I I mean, those were kind of like bat shark repellent. I mean, you know, (laughs) those those were ridiculous enough to have their own sort of value to them. But this is just like, I don't know. Uh, Hawkeye takes Black Widow away because she was injured and he can't stand to see her injured and wants to see her safe. She had been saying, no, 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 don't pay attention to me go take care of him this is your moment to no avail they head off they will live to meet another day as allies apparently (laughs) before long yes yeah it's not as bad as the phantom story but you know it's it's not great although you know it does introduce a new aspect of black widow and so that's nice
0: this is a major story this is the final story with hawkeye's villain it's the first story in which black widow starts becoming something like the black widow that we know and love today starts becoming you know an actual spider themed character who has actual stuff on her wrists which uh, she still has today this is a major major story it's not a great story but it's a major story it's a it's a big turning point i guess they're setting up hawkeye's turn to the good next month but it doesn't feel like they're setting it up enough we'll see if it feels convincing when it happens next month
1: it didn't feel convincing to me the first time I read through it, so uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Okay, so now, Captain America and Bucky and the Daring Days of World War II. This story, unfortunately, also comes across to me as subpar. I like um, the story
0: fine. So I did do a little looking up. Last week, I felt bad that I had not actually looked back at the old Captain America comics in the 40s to see how much that story was drawing on the original comics. This time, I did. And it turns out that in Captain America Comics number one, there is the first story, which is the origin of Captain America, which was very similar to the retelling we had last issue, although it was significantly different in some ways. But then the second story in Captain America Comics number one is Captain America and Bucky versus Sando and Omar. And it is this story. So they are like, they're like, we have this treasure trove of comics to tap into from the 1940s and we can just retell those stories and we'll retell every single one. So we'll devote one issue to the first story from Captain America number one to the next issue to the next story from Captain America number one. They are going to wring every ounce of uh, value they can out of those old comics.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you were talking about going back and looking at how similar those things were. I did, I went back and looked too and there was at least there were at least some portions of it that were seemed like they were literally traced. Yeah. The scene where Agent 13, or who I assume is Agent 13, we're going to meet Agent 13 here uh, by name, but where the agent who was guarding the thing that looked like an old crone but then turned out to be a beautiful young woman, that panel where she's taking off her mask, uh, it, it was clearly traced. by by Kirby from the Simon and Kirby panel. Okay,
0: bogus in both cases that Joe Simon does not get any credit for these things. Joe Simon should be getting original story credit on both last issue and this issue, but he does not.
1: Yes, and should probably be getting paid for it as well. Yes. Sando and Omar are apparently a stage show act, like supposed to be some kind of psychic sort of thing. Omar is this smallish looking dude with a big head. So Sando is telling him, project into the crystal ball what will be happening in the future and what comes up is some American tanks being sabotaged. And it turns out this is basically what they do. So we get a little bit of a view also of uh, Cap and Bucky on the uh, base. Basically, he's always getting himself into trouble. He's on KP, peeling potatoes. Ends up pissing off his Sarge so bad that Sarge just says get out of here before I really lose my temper. Which I don't think that's how it Things work. I don't think that if you really piss off your Sarge, he's just going to be like, okay, you were at your own liberty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, the, apparently, that's how Cap knew that this was going to happen because then this gets him out so that he can go and see Omar and Sando.
0: We should point out, by the way, this issue is by Stanley, Jack Kirby, and Frank Ray. And Frank Ray, once again, seems to be taking particular joy in trying to look like what Kirby looked like ganking himself back in the day. It's uh, really making this look like a golden age book. It's really beautiful inking by Frank Ray.
1: Yeah, yeah, Captain America and Bucky in their, civ- in the, not civilian, in their <laughs> we often talk about people's civilian clothes if they're not in their superhero clothes but right now <laughs> they're specifically not in civilian clothes either. They're in their military clothes. They go in through the back entrance, which apparently is unguarded and you can just walk right in which, you know, okay, sure, fine. And uh, they see a reporter, a female reporter who is trying to talk to Sando while he's on his way on stage and he is being very rude towards her. Then she sneaks into to Sando and Omar's dressing room, I guess, to wait, await them and be able to uh, ambush them when they get off stage. They then have another uh, stage show that's very similar in this case, showing a bridge being blown up. But that Captain America and Bucky are up in a projection room and they find out this stuff is all being just projected onto the crystal ball. And they go out and attack the guys on stage. Omar runs off scared. Captain America goes back to the dressing room when, where he hears some screams from a woman. Finds out that all of Sando's agents are here with guns, holding uh, Bucky and uh, the woman, reporter, hostage. Then she reveals that she was uh, working with the Women's Army Corps, cooperating with the FBI, investigating a new wave of sabotage.
0: So she was lying about being a reporter. So I'm not yes. a reporter. I'm a special agent for the Women's Army Corps, or the WACs, as they were also known. We're cooperating with the FBI and investigating this new wave of sabotage. So... This is, And then, of course, it turns out, as you've been calling her, Agent 13. So this is Captain America comics from this point on will be just endlessly confused all the way up to modern day in terms of the Carter family. The Carter family is the ultimate headache for (laughs) the Captain America comics because right away we have – I was shocked that before we get Sharon Carter in modern day, we've got – she is not named here, but they are going to do the same thing here with – presumably this is Pecky Carter, that they will do later with Sharon Carter, where she will be first met as an active agent working for a secret service at the time. We will meet Sharon Carter when she works for S.H.I.E.L.D. We are now meeting Pecky Carter when she was working for the WAX. And by the way, they will get very confused as to whether or not they are sisters or aunt and niece, or whether they are grandmother and granddaughter. Of course, this all changes as the time schedule slides. Um, Yes. But in terms of, they both introduce themselves as, I can't tell you my name, let's just call me Agent 13. So that happens first here, and then it happens again in modern day when we meet the other Carter.
1: Okay. So I I was looking a little bit of this up too. And apparently, no woman named Carter existed in the 1940s comics. No. That Peggy Carter's first appearance is when she shows up in. the 1960s captain america comics I
0: think this is peggy carter's first appearance
1: well okay so there was an agent 13 who was blonde who eventually went on to turn into a superheroine named golden girl and i think she eventually got a civilian name attached to her which was betty ross uh, sorry betsy ross betsy ross not betty ross and so that was an agent 13 that existed in the world war ii comics and she had this whole thing and then now they're like oh well here's agent 13 but is she kind of peggy carter is she kind of not peggy carter we're not really sure Uh, the way i've seen the uh the old golden age books in marvel is they're kind of canon Yeah. Right. It's like it's like the general gist of what happened in those is canon. (laughs) But but that's it. Yeah. Anyway, it turns out that Omar is, of course, a Nazi spy. And at one point he says, I can drop that Sando act now. I am Colonel Wolfgang von Kranz. Turns out, yes, this is a whole Nazi thing. And they're just doing sabotage and then somehow using the Sando and Omar act to help spread terror and fear among the American populace. Now, how exactly having a stage act doing this does that in terms of the sheer fact that you're having sabotage going on all the time and Bridges being blown up and whatever would seem to me to already be pretty terrifying. You don't have to reveal yourself to folk in this way. In the end, Bucky is about to start laying laying into Omar. But then Agent 13 says, no, Omar was just an innocent pawn. Sando hired him from a freak show. He didn't realize what he was doing. And then Steve and Bucky get back into their army uniforms and head back to their lives as mediocre army men yes so um this this issue has a lot of fantastic fight scenes in it Page nine that panel right at the top with captain america crushing two goons while and third one shoots at him is just a fantastically dynamic scene all of the previous page page eight that's the kind of stuff where kirby just completely rewrote the visual medium for superhero comics it's it's just you know superhero comics as we know them do not exist without pant without fight scenes like this but like i said i don't really get the whole sando and omar thing i don't get quite why they're what value add this brings where do they get the films of the sabotage that's going to happen Yes, Rather makes no than sense. You know, it makes zero sense whatsoever.
0: All they're doing is just warning people about what they're yes. going to do. Like they're, yes. they're making what they're doing less scary and less likely to succeed. It makes no sense.
1: And well, and bringing suspicion upon themselves. <laughs> yes. you know, it's like, hey, these guys always seem to know where the sabotage is going to happen. I want. Oh, they must be psychic. That's the only that's the only answer.
0: But a beautiful looking story. Beautifully penciled yes. by Kirby, Beautifully inked by Frank Wright. Yes. And of course, we have maybe the introduction <laughs> of the Carters, Captain America's most confusing story element.
1: Yes. On then to you doing another one of these backwards books where we've got a real stinker in the front <laughs> and something better in the back.
0: Yes, as all three Tales books for the last several months have been Stinker in the Front and Quality in the Back. So we have Giant Man and the Incredible Hulk in Tales to Astonish, a breathtaking villainous and nerve-shattering superpower, and Giant Man becomes a victim of the minutes of Madame Macabre. And it has a bizarre cover predicting the bizarre issue inside in which a woman of seemingly Asiatic origin is got Giant Man trapped in a shrinking broom. And then just on the bottom of the cover, it shows... The Hulk busting through a wall, it says The Power of Dr. Banner. So we begin with our Giant Man story, The New Giant Man, starring in The Menace of Madame McComber. And I got to say, I love this first page. This story is yes. by Stanley and Bob Powell and Frankie Ray. So we you know, we had heirs in King Bob Powell in Human Torch here. We've got Frank Ray inking King Bob Powell and doing, I'd say, a better job of it. And... We have this beautiful opening page of Giant Man and the Wasp are in their penthouse lab, but Giant Man has decided to fix the TV aerial. And so he has grown so tall that he is, his feet are on the floor on one floor, and then his torso is on the second floor, and then his head is sticking out the roof and he's adjusting it. And I think it's just really well drawn by Bob Powell.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and you can see where he like lifted off the glass sunroof there and has set it beside him. So you know, they've actually sort of thought through a little bit of that, and then uh, presumably they've gone ahead and customized this their office to be two stories tall because of him.
0: Yeah, I uh, yeah. I think it's it's really kind of nice. Then. Yes. We go ahead and go into the story. The Wasp is reading about Madame Macabre in the paper and saying, oh, she's an Oriental scientist. I apologize for using that word. Who claims to be able to make any objects grow or shrink at will? She might be competition for you. And indeed, we then cut to Madame Macabre and her little assistant, Gogo. And she has a truly bizarre power. She can make things grow, but only plastic toys. So it's like, oh, put that little plastic toy tractor there. I will make it grow into a giant plastic tractor. And it's like, oh, it is a shame that my power only works on the uncanny plastic material you have developed. And, but then she's like, oh, I've got a little tiny room here. I can use that against Giant Man. Then she briefly flashes back to her origin when she was saved from a bunch of stuff falling on her by the Mandarin. And then the Mandarin sent her to school at a Lamasery. And at the Lamasery, she decided to devote her attention to making little plastic toys shrink and grow. And, <laughs> That's the only thing we will see of the Mandarin in this issue. So then she goes to Giant Man and says, join me together with our powers, which my powers would add so much to yours. Then we can take over the world. And he says, forget it. So then she says, well, how do we trap this guy? Clearly the way to get to him is the wasp. Everybody takes the wasp hostage. Why should we be any different? So then we have, the wasp has been invited to an exhibit and she falls for this, shows up for the exhibit and gets clobbered and taken hostage. Giant Man figures out what's going on, is trying to find her. This whole story is just he finds the wasp, rescues her, puts her on a little chaise lounge on top of a roof, and then goes down to get these people who are stealing art from the museum. And then he gets trapped in a little room that shrinks, and he has to shrink with it. So now he's trapped in this little room. Well, at this point, the wasp wakes up on her little chaise lounge. And for once, she actually does go rescue Giant Man, which is nice. Giant Man is, there is a an effective panel on page 10 of Giant Man being really, really cramped down into this little shrinking plastic room where he looks like he is massively cramped in there. And uh, the wasp comes up and tries to free him. She is put in a little shrinking bottle, but it shatters because the cork doesn't shrink. Madame McCobber is making, once again, doing the only real power she has, making a plastic tractor grow. And then what happens here
1: well so apparently this little miniature toy plastic tractor actually had real working controls on it (laughs) because when it's brought up to full size uh jan is able to jump into the seat and start at you know start manipulating the uh the tractor uh as a tractor driver would
0: yes uh bizarre stupid forgettable So then, she she eventually grabs Madame Macabre and rips off her wig and finds that uh, says it has all sorts of miniaturized electronic circuits inside. So that's how you can change the size of metal. And she grabs it away and manages to turn off the shrinking of the room that Hank is in. Hank gets all big and grabs Madame Macabre. And later, Hank meets with Jan. Says the police learned that her finger guard was actually attuned to her hairpiece. What do you say to that? And. She, Wass says i made up my mind i do like your crew cut and indeed he has a crew cut in this issue a terrible story a terrible issue uh that first page is good but otherwise unremarkable art from bob powell totally forgettable villainous with a truly idiotic power let's forget all about this issue
1: yeah uh well uh, so just a couple things to say i i I mean, you. I, I think that you downplayed uh, Bob Powell's art a little bit here. I actually kind of like the art in. I, I actually. I mean, we already talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, yeah, I think the art in this uh, in this story is relatively charming, uh, even if the story itself is not. But in terms of two story things, earlier when Madame 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 Macabre, or however you pronounce that. Um, all Frenchy boo. <laughs> uh, Jan comes to Hank and says, sorry to interrupt, High Pockets, but there's someone to see you. Hank says, uh-uh, I'm too busy now. He says, fine, I'll tell her to leave. He says, her? Wait a minute, perhaps I do have time. <laughs> it's like, wow, man, stay classy, Hank. That's, uh... <laughs> and then later, when they get the wasp Uh, the bad guys have the wasp and they chloroform her. Uh, and one of the goons says, this is our chance to unmask her, madam. And then she says, no, it's not worth the trouble. She will no longer concern us. And it's like this whole thing of why don't people try to unmask these folks more often? And then also dude, giant man's fan club is always showing up at Hank Pym's lab. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> is, anyway. <clears throat> yes. All right. Those are my only two thoughts about that.
0: Yes. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to the second half of the book. The Incredible Hulk. The Power of Dr. Banner. This is Power Pack script by Stanley, Lee. Hard-hitting art by Steve Ditko. Two-fisted inking by Vince Coletta. Wah, wah. This is... So we know that Ditko especially hated Coletta's inks. Ditko seemingly was the only person at the time who was able to look at Coletta's inks and go, this is horrific. Why are you people hiring him? And he would make a big deal. I guess, what is the story? He would go into Marvel offices and look through the most recent books they had on display. And if Colette, he saw had inked it, he would make a big show of throwing it in the trash or something like that.
1: <laughs> I, I, this is a story I'm not familiar with.
0: But uh, so, this is one of the few times when Dicko is actually stuck with Kleda inking his art. Maybe this is one reason why Dicko is about to leave the Hulk. I think next issue will be his final issue. But Kleda doesn't actually do that bad a job on Dicko here. It looks a lot better than Tales of Asgard looked this month. So, then we pick up where last issue left off, where the Hulk and another dude had escaped from a Soviet prison, but somehow the other dude had all this food and drink available for the Hulk as soon as he escaped. It's like, dude, where'd you get that from? And then they were being snuck up on by a soviet dude with a proton gun sure enough the dude shoots proton gun at the hulk the scientist jumps in the way and takes the brunt of it and dies and he thinks was friend died for hulk they killed hulk's friend they killed hulk's friend now it is hulk's
1: turn and so this is the first moment where we've really heard the hulk talk like the hulk that we would generate that would be the standard hulk for decades to come however he does not stay that way now He is briefly talking, like, about himself in the third person and, you know, not having, you know, talking like a small child, basically. That shows up for a moment here, it then disappears, and it will eventually creep back in.
0: Yeah, so then the Hulk is fighting, but of course there's the bizarre status quo at this point is that the more excited the Hulk gets, the more likely he is to change back to Bruce Banner, which is not as opposed to later when he will calm down and become Bruce Banner. So he... Changes Bruce Banner and passes out. Meanwhile, cut back to America. Glenn Talbot is still convinced that Bruce Banner is a traitor and has defected behind the Soviet Union. Pretty much convinced General Thunderbolt Ross of this. Betty is not convinced. She has classic Dickos blade fingers on the top of page five. Talbot, of course, wants Betty for himself, which is all the more reason to try to prove that Banner is a traitor. We then cut to the leader. They've been very unclear as to what the leader's relationship is to the Soviet until this point, because when we first saw him, he was controlling a spy who seemed to be a Soviet spy, and he was in touch with the chameleon, who we think of as a Soviet spy, but it never really seemed like he was much of a communist. Well, here they make it more clear that this communists, there is a communist spymaster who looks exactly like Joseph Stalin. And he thinks that the leader is working for him, but the leader is not. And the leader is like, he just lets the communists think that he is controlling them. So we have the leader, he checks in with the chameleon, and then he checks in with this Joseph Stalin, the looking spymaster. And the leader thinks to himself, I shall contact the would-be conquerors who are foolish enough to think that the leader works only for them. So he is just letting the Soviets think that he is working for them. But then he says, I know that the Hulk is there in the Soviet Union. And I know that if he's there, that Bruce Banner is too. And the Soviet is like, how did you know that? And the leader's like, I'm so smart. But then the leader says, I shall content myself to merely wait and observe future developments. So then meanwhile, we cut back to Bruce Banner, who was on the run in the Soviet Union. He, now it's, this bizarre thing now where it's like when he gets excited he becomes the hulk and then when he gets even more excited he becomes the Banner, and then when he gets even more excited he becomes the hulk so then
1: yes. and, be- and this is this isn't the soviet union remember it was in a captive red curtain country or something like that that is but true not that, it, not that it really matters that much but yeah
0: well but it, they've certainly got enough soviet planes because a bunch of soviet planes and tanks attack the hulk and he's fighting back and then we leave off at the end of the issue so very little happens in this issue. <laughs> you know, the most important thing that happens is we just get clear on what the leader's deal is. But generally speaking, it begins with wherever this country is, Bruce Banner and the Hulk are on the run, and Bruce Banner and the Hulk are still on the run in this country at the end of the issue. Almost nothing happens in this issue. It is pretty forgettable.
1: Yeah, although, you know, I might be putting too much importance on this, but I really do find it significant that this is the first time we hear the Hulk speak the way that the Hulk spoke the whole time, not the whole time, but for most of our youth. Right. You know, it's our first glimpse of what will become the status, the sort of general status quo, even though, as you pointed out, there generally is no status quo in the Hulk. It's always the status is always changing and not quoing. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh but in the punctuated equilibrium uh that we've got in the Hulk, that's the uh the the common the common way of doing it. So I find that to be quite important. Yeah, I like the art in here, as you said. Vince Coletta doesn't massacre this stuff. But yeah, as you as you're saying, nothing really happens and I, I can't argue with that.
0: Yeah. And we're gonna lose we're gonna lose Dick in the book, but then Jack Kirby's gonna come back, so we can't complain that much. And uh but I think we've got at least one more takeaway issue left.
1: All right. So, let's move on to the last one of the month here, The Avengers. The thriller you never expected to see. Now, by my hand, shall perish a villain. The world's mightiest superheroes in mortal battle with the world's deadliest villains. And we have a great cover here um, of The Avengers as they currently are facing off against the Masters of Evil. Uh, however, what we see here is never going to take place in the issue because this ends up getting split up between two different continents uh, in a way that makes no sense whatsoever.
0: We've got sort of a dream team of the Masters of Evil here. Everyone who's ever been a Master of Evil minus Radioactive Man, and, uh, but Radioactive Man's place has been taken by Enchantress and Executioner, who had been part of a different version of the Masters of Evil. So they're sort of all brought together here into a super group.
1: Yes. Um, so I, I don't want to spend much time on the splash page here, but because uh, it's just a vendors meeting breaking up. But look at Rick Jones's face on that splash page. How old is Rick Jones?
0: <laughs> yeah, he looks fifty.
1: <laughs> yeah, he, he he looks no less than thirty five, probably around fifty exactly.
0: But let's go and talk about the credits here. Speaking of who is in charge of putting lines on Rick Jones's ah, face, yes. we have a major addition to the Marvel universe here. Yes. We have. Script Stanley layouts Jack Kirby. So they have so Jack Kirby doing layouts, but apparently very rough layouts because the art looks pure heck. Penciling, Don Heck. So this is, you know, very rough layouts from Jack Kirby. Presumably he's really being used as a co-parner. But then the real penciling is being done by Don Heck and then inking by the so-called Mickey DeMeo. So who is Mickey DeMeo? Uh,
1: I'm trying to remember his actual name. Hold on. Wait, wait. Don't tell me. Uh, it's slipping out of my mind for the moment. I it, Go ahead and say it.
0: This is Mike Esposito. So there you go. Mike Esposito was had been a Marvel inker back in the day. He had then moved to DC where he had worked, uh, done a lot of big books at DC, especially Wonder Woman, which he had been, Ross Andrew had been penciling and he had been inking Wonder Woman for almost 10 years at this point. But he was looking for a little work on the side. So he started doing some side work at Marvel as but he couldn't do his real name Mike Esposito so he had to make up the pseudonym Mickey DeMeo and would eventually start working at Marvel under his own name would become the inker on a big part of John Romita's run on Spider-Man and would go on to become a major Marvel inker. and here we have his first book back since he has returned to Marvel Comics and like you say it's not ideal like he's putting way too many lines on Rick Jones face for one thing but it's not he's generally an inker I like and I think he generally does a pretty good job with this issue. It still looks, you know, Heck is just a powerful penciler and it's still, if you told me Heck could inked this issue himself, I would have believed you.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I have found that generally when you've got someone doing breakdowns or layouts, though, I think they're used interchangeably, someone doing pencils and someone doing inking, that things get lost in the translation. It's like you're playing a game of telephone and you're just adding another person in the middle there. And so uh, on the splash page, Iron Man, whose back is to us, that is not a finished drawing. No. I mean, yeah, it's it's just not. And then meanwhile, there are too many lines on. Yeah, Rick Jones's face. Anyway, one way or the other. Uh, The meeting breaks up and we see all of the members of the Avengers uh, turning back into their non-superhero identities and leaving in ways that once again just are like, you know, wait, you're changing in Avengers Mansion and then walking out? Aren't people going to see, oh, hey, (laughs) you two must be giant man and wasp because you're a man and a woman walking out of here together. Who knows how all this stuff works? We see the first appearance of Steve Rogers' art portfolio. That he is going to hide his shield in when he is walking around town in civilian clothes.
0: Seemingly, it's just a prop at this point. He's not he doesn't have any actual art in there. In addition to his shield, he will eventually take on a secret identity of being an artist by day. But I guess that may be still another 15 years off in the future. But he's he is using an artist portfolio at least now.
1: Yeah, and he will become a commercial artist uh, as his day job eventually, and there will be a storyline at one point, I believe, written by Mark Gruenwald. Does he actually become the penciler on the Captain America comic book, or is it just that he's in talks to do that? I don't you remember, remember this. this. No, I don't. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, and and they, they play on that whole art thing in the captain america the first avenger movie they have him doing sketches and stuff while he is at camp lehigh he's got a little sketchbook yeah um, which i i thought was a nice touch but then we see baron zemo who's still down in south america we still see the humiliating treatment that he is giving to his native captives zemo's like okay i've waited long enough we need to take care of captain america now goes and gets one of his uh soldiers a pilot that is giving him a Heil Hitler there, and he's got an armband where instead of a uh, swastika, it's got a big Z. So, and then the plane has a big Z on the side too, which has interesting echoes these days. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, and the perspective on that on that panel where the guy's given the, the Heil you know, Heil Zemo or whatever, perspective just doesn't make any sense if you look at the Native Americans on the on the left hand side and the size of them in comparison with the anyway. Okay. So then uh we see that Steve Rogers, whom we have figured out the writers don't really know what to do with in modern day, they will then like, well, okay, Steve doesn't know what to do with himself in modern day. So we see him penning a letter to Colonel Nick Fury saying, you know, I'm anxious to get back in the harness again. I've heard that you are engaged in important counter espionage work for the army. And uh, so he wants to be a part of this. Uh, now, we have not been reading Sergeant Fury's books as we've gone on, which I am regretting to some extent. But we saw that Captain America met Sergeant Fury in World War II, So presumably they, he is calling on him again here.
0: So this is Sorry. just going to be a, a bizarre storyline that, they, yes. that they're they going to have this bizarre thing where Captain America doesn't hear back from Nick Fury and gets really, really, sad about it. And then eventually does finally hear back from Nick Fury and has this famous panel where he's like jumping in the air and going, whee, I heard back from Nick Fury. It is, yeah. This is the beginning of a bizarre storyline of Captain America's sad sack incel uh, <laughs> who is uh, – who is who is feeling horribly hurt by Nick Fury? By the way, still no shield. Shield has not been invented yet.
1: No, no, and uh, and I, the other weird <clears throat> thing you were talking how bizarre this little you know particular branch of the story is is it doesn't really go anywhere. It's not like he ends up being full you know becoming an agent of Shield when Shield uh, is invented in a few months. Uh, it just sort of doesn't go anywhere, which is just. Just so weird. Anyway, so Cap goes out to a public mailbox to put this uh, mail in rather than sending it out in some official thing somewhere else. But that's because he can then accidentally see the Executioner and the Enchantress just in a cab yeah. heading down the street or with a driver. I don't know if it's necessarily a cab, but still. Um, so. <laughs> Steve is trying to catch up with them, and he's like jumps up on a lamp post to get a better view, and then he's literally jumping from car roof to car roof to try and catch up with them in traffic. Which that's one of those things where, as a kid, I would probably be like, "Ooh, neat!" But now I'm just like, "Oh, dude, move my car! Come on!" And then he's swinging up a uh, traffic light cord but then the enchantress is able to use a little hex to break that cord and make him fall down now we don't see what damage that traffic light ends up doing to any cars or pedestrians or anything from that point on but that is yes. not our we then it's interesting to see the enchantress when they're back at their lair in a very modern sort of i don't know what would you call that is not, it that's not a pantsuit it's a jump jumpsuit like I'm, what do you call that thing that she's wearing?
0: She looks not very Asgardian. She looks very sleek and modern. I like it.
1: Yeah, and uh, and you know they're, they've got this very mid-century modern looking uh, like kind of living room uh, back behind them, and uh, they've actually put up a an axe and mace uh, in a you know cross up above the fireplace back there. So they've really uh, settled in and made it homey here. They have. Anyway, they hear from Zemo, who's like, "It's time," and uh, you know. I'm really like, OK, I, I could see how they're like, OK, we're new on this planet. We don't really know what's going on here, but let's find someone else who is also kind of evil like us to sort of show us the ropes. But to have them actually like sort of jumping to when Zemo says, OK, it's time for us to do the thing seems really out of character. Anyway, yeah, uh, Captain America has just called the Avengers back together presumably just hours later to say, Hey, I just saw these two. We need to go do something about it. But before they can, Rick Jones is somehow sucked up into the air towards a plane that's flying overhead. Now it doesn't look like they're outside when this happens. So I'm not entirely sure how. Yeah. That's
0: that's an excellent question. Yes. Yeah. It looked like they were indoors and then suddenly he sucked up into the air and up to a plane. And this is, just entirely relying on the fact that Heck is such a sketchy penciler, some combination of Kirby and Heck here are just being totally unclear whether they're inside or outside, as is the colorist. So they're like, okay, I guess that means we can get away
1: with this. Captain America then hands Giant Man his shield in a really unfinished looking panel. And Giant Man then throws the shield at the plane. But it's got some sort of force field and so it bounces off. Now, oddly enough, when we come back to the scene in a page or two, that shield will, having bounced off this thing half a mile away or something like that, will just happen to land right back in Giant Man's hands.
0: (laughs) He needs the magnets.
1: Yes, yes. But we see that Wasp has stolen on board the plane that is taking rick away this is where we see the shield just drop right into giant man's hand captain america asks iron man to ask tony stark to go and get a hunter plane so that I can use it. So then he says, uh, I hereby order the immediate dispatch of the XL750 rocket plane. Uh, And I was trying to look this up to see if this is a real thing, and no, no, I don't think it is. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we see the Black Knight and the Melter pacing around in their cells, wearing their costumes, which, you know... But and once again, Stan Lee seems embarrassed enough by this to have to explain it, which he usually doesn't in these cases. At one point, the melter says we were allowed to keep our armored costumes because a scientific delegation from Washington is on the way to study us and we have no way to stop them. (laughs)
0: And they point out, but but the bars of their cells were chemically treated to resist his melting power, given that he is allowed to have his melter on in the jail cell. Absolutely ridiculous, unconvincing, really, really dumb.
1: Yes. So anyway, a mystical portal shows up, lets them out of their cell, and it is, of course the Enchantress, who has transported them. The Black Knight then is just like, oh yeah, sure, I'll go do what I need to do right now. So he just jumps on his horse that they have brought with them, flies up into the air, and is trying to attack this XL-750 Hunter plane or whatever it is. So then... Thor just heads after the Black Knight. They're chasing each other. The Melter, meanwhile, goes ahead and tries to melt the plane and actually gets a Melter beam going up right through the cabin, right in between uh, Captain America and um, Iron Man. So then Iron Man goes out he says through that hole although on the next panel you see that the beam is still melting the hole so I'm not entirely sure unless he's now doing a second hole also this is another place where uh, Stan Lee is making excuses for the art it says supported by his delicately balanced cloak, this is the melter "Uh, the mysterious melter almost seems to be flying as he dodges amongst the building ledges trying to lure Iron Man to one certain spot so you know Stan Lee was like Dude, he's just, he's jumping off a building. That's not one of his powers. How do I explain this? So the melter then is, you know, shoots a melting beam. And Iron Man's like, aha, you missed. He's like, I wasn't aiming for you. I was aiming for that support on the water tower behind you. So then Iron Man says, aha, uh, I can turn around and just take care of that real quick. And he says... Uh Aha! That was a distraction, too! What I was actually trying to do is weld your boots to the top of the building with my melting power... He's, oh, no, he did it. It's like a double bank shot and pool, or something like that. So now there is a force field that's holding the plane in place. I don't think we had heard about this before earlier. Figure, oh, it has to be the enchantress who is uh, doing this. So somehow the wasp happens to be in this uh, alleyway that the executioner and enchantress run into. And she happens to find an almost full and yet pun- punctured open can of oil that just happens to be in the alley. And then she turns it over and spills it right in the path of the two Asgardians, and they happen to step in it and slip. Okay, great. Jan got to do something. Yeah. (laughs) But it's... Oh, man, it just bugs me. Yeah, so Jan ends up getting captured by uh, the Enchantress. Hank, of course, starts to freak out and get all violent and start destroying buildings and stuff. So here's where it gets really weird. So Once Captain America is able to get away from the Enchantress's force field and all this sort of stuff, he then takes this rocket plane at maximum speed down to South America and seemingly gets there in literally minutes. Um, Well, this is just
0: the reverse of what we had last time that they were fighting SEMO. Once again, we've got SEMO's ships are capable of going, I guess, but this isn't SEMO's ship. This is an Avengers ship but yes. uh, capable of going back and forth between South America and New York really now, really I'd, fast.
1: It may have been that the plane was just modified by those holes the melter just shot through <laughs> the thing a moment ago. Maybe that makes it fly faster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like dude, you're flying this thing obviously at many 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 times the speed of sound and you've got like holes that are just gaping in your hull. <laughs> anyway, once again, thinking about it too much here right now. He then makes it all the way to South America and um, in this plane that really looks like—I mean—the design work that was done on this plane is just terrible. It looks literally like a paper airplane.
0: Yes, it, it, it very much looks like an actual, literal paper airplane.
1: And and this is part of where that whole sort of game of telephone I was talking about visually uh, ends up coming in. I'm sure because you know I'm sure that you know Kirby just drew in some oh here's a plane and you know just sort of the general shape of something and then. Don Heck is like, what? what is this? What is this thing supposed to look like? And then try to make it out. And then the anchor comes in. And he's like, man, this is a mess. I just need to go ahead and get some ink on the page and <laughs> move on with my life. So Captain America comes in strafing Baron Zemo's forces. And then this is apparently all part of Zemo's plan because right then he then has a hydraulic lift bring Rick Jones in a glass like snow globe looking thing up into the path of captain america's bullets uh or rounds or whatever kind of rounds be coming from his plane the whole plan was that cap would accidentally kill rick so just to double his his emotional psychic pain from already having had the death of bucky Uh, and once again i ask you on the bottom of page 16 how old is rick there yeah no, seriously, it's, it's just ridiculous. So then we go back to New York. The Avengers, the Avengers, other than Captain America, all basically just round up the Masters of Evil.
0: But they don't. They, they don't round up the Masters of Evil. I'd assumed that, the, given this issue is sort of the big conclusion of the Avengers saga, this is the end of the saga of the first Avengers, the first Avengers team. I assumed it would wrap up more than it did. I assumed they would they would wrap they would round up the master's people here, but no, that battle leaves off. Oh right. Very much an, inconclusively here and in fact will continue next issue. This battle is still very much ongoing between the Avengers and the master's people. It's only the battle between Zemo and Captain America down in South America that reaches quite a definitive conclusion in this issue
1: yes that's a good point so captain america then parachutes out of his plane and comes down to help rick so what happens to the plane i'm not entirely sure captain america throws his shield in such a way to create a rock slide between zemo and his military forces and so he separates them out and then uses his shield to blind zemo which we've seen him do before and uh with a sumo so he's yes. done this with a sumo, and he's done this with Zemo. Um, <laughs> although, at least this time, he's outside. Yes. With the sumo, he was not in, He was not outside. He was inside. Um, but so this blinding flash causes uh, Baron Zemo to fire wildly with his gun, which then tr- triggers another uh, rock slide, which kills Zemo.
0: Yes, so, for good. The, yeah. I don't think Zemo ever comes back to life. This is not, not the major... Zemo the major villain of the first 15 issues of Avengers is killed off for this very, you know, again, it would be much more of a definitive conclusion. If the rest of the masters of evil had been defeated back in New York, they were not that storyline will continue in the next issue, but readers don't, don't realize at this point, why there's a little hint here at the end. So Stanley already knows it's going to happen. This is the end of Avengers phase one and this very definitive end, partially uh, with the death of Zemo. Now he will, his son uh, who, I think will eventually become his grandson. Uh, Baron Zemo um, will eventually become a major Captain America villain and then a major Avengers villain. But this Zemo never comes back to life and he never gets his hood unglued from his face. So he uh, remains the paste victim. He has always been. He goes to his grave as a paste victim.
1: Let's see. What else was I going to say here? Oh yeah. Just one silly bit of dialogue uh, earlier in the issue where Thor makes a grand statement and is, you know, sort of waving his uh, hammer for emphasis. And Jan says, watch out where you swing that hammer, golden boy. There's a lady present. <laughs> Which, yes. you know, uh, okay, yeah, it's, it's fun to read those things out of context. But yeah, the, as you were saying, you know, we've got Mike Esposito here, but uh, the inking in this issue is generally not good. Um, it is, this thing was clearly done in a hurry. Uh, and there's this big chunky chunks of, you know, like I'm looking at what page the final page. Um, and just the way that those various rocks are inked, it almost looks like a marker like they may have been using a laundry marker, or a sharpie for parts of that thing artistically generally pretty disappointing, lots of things that make no sense in terms of location and travel and things like that, but an important issue, a very important issue in that yes, we have this death of baron zemo
0: yes big uh big conclusion too. Phase one, and then launching into phase two next issue. But yes, a pretty terrible issue, not a promising debut from Mickey DeMaio, a.k.a. Mike Esposito, but he will go on to much finer work.
1: Anyway, yeah, so as you said, this month was very much front-loaded in terms of the issues that we read. So the previous episode to this one was uh, going through some much better stuff. But there was obviously, as we said, some very important things that happened in these issues and some decent art, uh, not all of which happened in the same stories.
0: Yeah, basically a great Doctor Strange story and uh, a bunch of other stories.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Some of which were important, but not that great. Some of which had some great art, but were not that great. Um, But yeah, Uh, so but, you know, this is what we get. This is this is what we get as we go through here. This is why we're doing this. Yep. So, yeah, thank you for being on board with us through thick and through thin. Thanks. Take care. Stay safe out there.
0: Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarbleRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time!